The first reading can be found on page 1113 in the Church Bibles. It's taken from Acts 17, verses 1 to 9. Page 1113, Acts 17, beginning with verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where they were Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three days' Sabbath, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of the God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some of the bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. This reading is taken from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, and it will be found on page 1186 of the Church Bibles. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'd be very grateful if um, we all kept that 1 Thessalonians passage open. And I'm going to pray for the Lord's help before we dive in. 
head first. So let's bow our heads and pray. The Thessalonians turned from idols to the living and the true God. Heavenly Father, please reveal yourself to us this morning as living, as life itself, and as true, as truth itself. And help us to turn to you with great joy. Amen. Amen. I should also say that if you're a note taker or prone to getting lost in talks like mine, then um, here's a little handout, a little um, roadmap to show you where we're going, if you'd find that helpful. Our world is full of fakes, absolutely full of fakes. Apparently, the production and sale of counterfeit goods make up a full 8% of China's GDP. Apparently, the buying and selling of counterfeit goods makes up for between 5 and 7% of global trade in volume. Now, if you know what to spot, a fake object can be easy to spot. As a teenager, I remember one of my favorite puffer jackets was a Tommy Hill finger jacket. It said that with that little N blazoned in the middle of a word it shouldn't have been. It was a fake. It was obviously a fake. Objects are easy to spot. But uh, people, fake people, are harder to spot, are they not? Have you seen the Leonardo DiCaprio film, Catch Me If You Can? It documents the true story of a man who evaded uh, the federal police for six full years posing as a Pan Am pilot and having a great time along the way. Or it's equally well-known, Charles Ponzi, Bernard Madoff, had these pyramid investment schemes, uh, notorious now, and they took a long time before they were caught. Um, Ponzi um, frauded people out of $20 million before he was caught, and Bernard Madoff, $18 billion dollars. It's much harder to to spot a fake person than it is a fake object, Tommy Hilfiger. But our world is full of fakes. What about the church? What about God's kingdom? How can you and I spot an authentic Christian believer and a fake? Is it possible? I mean, after all, the Lord Jesus Christ says, do not judge, doesn't he? Aren't we told that God sees into the heart and God alone? Is it possible to find out who's an authentic believer amongst us now and who's a fake? Well, have a look down, as, if you would, at verse 4 of that 1 Thessalonians passage. The Apostle Paul is very clear here. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul knows that these Thessalonian Christians are the real deal. He knows they're not fake Tommy Hilfiger Christians. He's looking at Tommy Hilfiger, the real thing. He's sure you can tell. He's writing to the church in Thessalonica with whom he shared the gospel for a very brief three weeks only. And we heard in that Acts reading read by Donald that he went straight to the synagogue 
the equivalent of Speaker's Corner. He set up his soapbox and his little microphone and amp, and he did a sound test and began to speak. For three weeks, he spoke there and taught. And in fact, the message was received warmly, and enough people became Christians that a church was started. Except then, with the popularity of the message spreading, there was the precursor to the London riots. Did you see it there in the Acts passage? Some of the Jews, we're told, became jealous. I take it they became jealous of their friends moving from the synagogue to the church. And Paul and his friends are forced out and on. How can Paul be so sure after only three weeks with these people that these Thessalonians are the real deal? Well, rather like with very smart jewelry, I'm told, he found a hallmark, in fact, several hallmarks, which point very clearly to their authenticity. And what we're going to do over the next few minutes is, as it were, haul the Thessalonian Christians and church onto the jeweler's desk and get a magnifying glass out and have a look at the hallmarks that describe them. And if we're brave enough at the end, we may even turn the magnifying glass on ourselves and see whether we also are real Christians. If you're ready for that, let's go. Hallmark number one that we find, motivation and behavior. Verse three, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, ever since Paul had to leave Thessalonica in a bit of a hurry, he'd been worried sick about them. Sleepless nights, how are they getting on? Doing his best impression of a mother with a teenage son. And he sent Timothy, his comrade, to go and check on them. And Timothy returns to him with this great news. He says, Paul, don't worry. They're full of faith and full of hope, and full of love. And so Paul can rest easy now, and he delights in that. They're they're full of faith, faith that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Savior who can rescue us from sin and guilt, full of hope, concrete certainty that this life is not all that there is, that the new creation awaits, and full of love, They'd been freed to love God and their neighbor more than to love themselves. And so he's delighted. It's tempting as a preacher to spend all the sermon on those three words, but we don't have time. I want us to notice that each one of those motivations, faith, hope, and love, comes with a behavior. Do you see the labor and the enduring? Now, Katie and I have just been on holiday to Sardinia, and I really recommend it as a holiday destination. Great. But us men are quite simple creatures. Whenever we got to a pebbly beach, I was well entertained picking up pebbles and throwing them into the sea. There's something about it I love. I love the kaflump sound it makes and the white water and the the ripples arcing out and the, the bathers running. But when you throw a rock into the into water, there are ripples. One cannot have ripples without the rock. One cannot have a rock without ripples. They come together. And it's the same in the Christian life. Whenever these motivations of faith, hope, and love are thrown into our lives, there will be huge ripples that change the way we live. 
behavioral changes. And it's very easy, I think, to try and separate those two. Have you come across that before? Where people say, no, 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 I'm full of faith. I just, I just can't change. I don't change. When Kenny gets baptized uh, this evening, do come. The promises he, he, he's going to make are full of faith, hope, and love. Now, those are not light promises one can make on a Sunday evening and forget about on a, on a Monday morning. They are rocks thrown into his life that will have real ripples. They'll change the way he behaves. When you and I say the creed after the children leave, we're saying the same things, faith, hope, and love. We cannot live in the same way. It's motivation and behavior. But the second mistake some people can make is to, is to try and say, now I want to change my behavior without the motivations. Have you come across that? The other day, Katie and I were in the Nike store at Piccadilly Circus, and they're big in the Nike store at changing outward appearance. If you've ever been, you'll know what I mean. The people who work there all have to wear lycra, it seems. It's very disturbing. <laughs> they all look like athletes on the outside, but if you talk to one of them for more than two minutes, many of them couldn't run more than a mile. You see, changing the externals does not change someone's internals. We need motivation to be thrown into our lives to change our behavior, more than lycra to become a runner. And it's the same in the Christian life. If you and I try and behave in Christian ways, maybe say a prayer from time to time, come to church occasionally, do and say the right things, without faith, hope, and love, we'll find it terribly tiring. We'll be like a car trying to drive without fuel. And we'll tire and we'll slow and we'll give up. And we'll look at other genuine Christians around us and wonder how they keep on going. How do they do it? And the answer is they've got faith, hope, and love. So that's the first hallmark, motivation and behavior. Hallmark number two, understanding and transformation. Have a look, if you would, down at verses four and five. Paul says, we know that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Hallmark number two is that authentic Christians both understand the gospel message and are transformed by it. What does it mean then when Paul says, our gospel came to you not simply with words? Does it mean that when he set up his soapbox in the synagogue and his little amplifier and microphone, he also jazzed up his words with a PowerPoint display? Maybe he even had those sound effects, you know, not just with words. Or was it interpretative dance and a sort of visual show he had going on, maybe with dancers? What does he mean, not only, not simply, with words? Well, I think he's saying that although the gospel message is understood through words, what is going on when somebody becomes a Christian is not a simple comprehension exercise like we did in our English lessons in school. It's not a question of listening to this message and saying, oh yes, I think I understand you now. Yes, I found this sentence particularly interesting. Yes, I could write an essay on this aspect of the faith. He's saying it's more than just comprehension. 
He's saying the gospel is not a puzzle to be solved or a verb to be conjugated or a formula to be reduced and understood. The gospel is power to transform. It's power to transform us. He's saying that when someone hears the gospel, understands it, and is transformed, the Holy Spirit steps into our lives and gets his toolbox out and begins to work on our motivations and our wills and everything in us so that we can never be the same person again. That's what we're celebrating with Kenny this evening. Not that he understood a complicated thing, but that he'd been transformed by a powerful thing, by the Lord Jesus Christ and his Spirit in the gospel. And I think there are two mistakes, again, that we make that this verse corrects. And we might call them mysticism and intellectualism. First, mysticism. Very common these days to come across this. And people say, I'm a fan of words. You know, I couldn't live without them. They're very useful for telling someone uh, how to get to my house and explaining what happened last Monday and telling jokes. I, I like words. But when it comes to communicating God, they just don't quite cut the mustard words. They're not quite up to it. They're a vehicle unsuited to the task, like trying to drive the queen in a Ford Fiesta. Words to communicate God. Have you come across that sort of idea? People want to move on from words. It's, it's mysticism. Well, the problem with that is that Paul's quite a fan of words, and God is quite a fan of words as well. Have you noticed how God, in his wisdom, gave us a book? And it really has quite a few words in it, if you've delved into it. And those words are sort of couched in logical sentences, and those sentences in paragraphs, and those paragraphs in chapters, and those chapters in books. And it's literature. You see, God can communicate himself through words. It's not just with words, but it's not less than words. So we can't be mystics. Second problem, intellectualism. This may be what some of us are more prone to of the two. Intellectualism, where we think that someone can just understand their way into God's kingdom. Maybe we've been sharing our faith with a friend, and we, the question we keep asking themselves and us is, do you understand it now? I wonder if they understand it. And that's a good question to ask, but not the only one. It's quite possible to understand the Christian message and to reject it. Do you remember the, the young man Jesus speaks, about, uh, speaks to in, in the Gospels? Shares the Gospel with him, and the young man goes away sad, precisely because he understands it. Or the Pharisees who persecute Jesus take him to the cross, precisely because they understand what he was talking about. We need more than understanding. It's understanding and transformation. Hallmark number three, imitation and modeling. Verses six to eight. If you'll look down, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And then down to verse seven. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Now, human beings like you and me are born imitators, whether we like it or not. We 
are sort of unimaginative. We imitate the people around us. One of my brothers went to live in Australia two years ago, and I, there was a video that I came across with, with him in. And um, it's a tragedy. He's picked up an Australian twang. Or if people go and live in the United States for a while, they, they come back walking on sidewalks and watching movies and eating tomatoes and wearing pants in public. We imitate the people around us, often the people we look up to, sometimes just the people we're in proximity to. And Paul is saying, because we imitate people, we're natural imitators, be careful whom we imitate. He says the Christian life is full of imitation of the right people and not the wrong people. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, he says. It's one of the things for Kenny this evening as he goes on in his Christian life, it'll be important for him to be coming regularly to a local church so that he can imitate good models to follow. It's not unthinking imitation, a sort of cultic brainwashing, monkey see, monkey do. They understood the gospel, they were transformed by the gospel, but they needed to see how it worked out in their particular postcode and their neck of the woods. That's a great thing with church. Have you seen Benedict Cumberbatch's new film? Great film. It's a great title for what church is, the imitation game. We come and we see what Christian life looks like in Belgravia. I'm learning, slowly. Imitation, but also, strikingly, modeling. Do you see that the Christians there were not just imitating Paul and therefore the Lord, they were modeling the Christian life to those around them. Uh, Verse 7, you became a model. Now, Kenny Ives is a good-looking man. But I dare say he never thought he was going to be a model. He's not going to be walking down the catwalk modeling beauty necessarily, but he will be walking down the sidewalk modeling Christ as a newly born Christian. It's the same for all of us. And then verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you. The word in the original for rang out has the sense of booming a loud trumpet blast, much less whisper and more loud hailer. And it must have been loud. Did you see how many people had heard of the Christian faith through the Thessalonians? Faith in God has been made known everywhere. Not just Macedonia and Achaia, not just this postcode, not just Belgravia, but everywhere. The point is, authentic Christians don't just imitate, we model We don't need sandwich boards proclaiming the gospel because that wouldn't be Belgravia, really. We don't need that because the gospel's written all over our lives, quick to be on our tongues. Hallmark number four, the final one, turning and waiting. Turning and waiting. Now, if Paul had ever tweeted, and I don't know whether he would if he were alive today, I think it would have been this from 1 Thessalonians, verses 9 and 10. Great summaries. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Hashtag real Christianity. 
Now, I counted the number of characters, and there are more than 140, and yes, it did take me quite a long time to count them. But it's a great summary of the Christian faith. If you're into learning verses, learn these. They're very clear indeed. We turn from something and to someone. That is what becoming a Christian means. The Thessalonians were surrounded by idols, literally idols on shelves of houses at the time. And you and I are surrounded by idols in Belgravia or your neck of the woods in London. They're just not on shelves. They're normally on billboards or on TV screens or in magazines. And this is how we spot our idols, if you'll permit me some impertinent diagnostic questions. Shall I ask them and we can think in our own minds? What or whom is the thing or person we think we couldn't live without? What or whom couldn't we live without? What or whom is the thing or person we daydream or have nightmares about? Daydream or nightmares? What or whom is the thing or person who acts as a screensaver for us? When we shut our eyes, when we put our minds in neutral, what do we think about? Screensaver. Now, our answers to those questions are private, but they will have been nudging us to see what perhaps our idols have grown to be, and we'll all have them. Now, authentic Christianity, Paul says, is turning from those and to the living and true God. And when we think about that, although it might be hard to turn from those things or people who might have taken number one spot in our lives, When we think about that in the cold light of day, it makes all the sense in the world to make God number one. On any metric, he wins. Paul picks out two. He's the living God. He's alive. No idol is alive or animate. None of them. He's the true God, capital T. Any idol promises fulfillment can never deliver. It's full of falsehood and deceit. So the Christian life is full of turning every day, and waiting, turning and waiting. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. Now, I meant to bring it in as a visual aid, but I forgot. When my parents gave me my um, first Bible, when I got confirmed, actually, my father wrote something in the front of it, which I think is brilliant and so true. He wrote this in his scrawled hand, The best is always yet to be. The best is always yet to be. It's worth thinking about. What a wonderful thing to write and to know to be true. It is only true for the Christian, and that is why we wait for his son to return from heaven. Perhaps we're past our physical prime in life. We're getting older. The best is yet to be. Perhaps our minds are not as sharp as they used to be. The best is always yet to be. Perhaps we're past childbearing age without children. The best is always yet to be. Perhaps we never got that career going that we always thought we wanted. The best is always yet to be. Perhaps we're just finding it so hard putting the Lord first and ourselves second and it hurts. The best is always yet to be. It's worth waiting for the best 
And I cannot wait for it, for the sun to return. I can't wait for it. For the stimulation and for the joy of ruling over this world with you guys, with other Christians. That's what we're going to be doing in eternity. For the wonder of being in a place where the sumptuousness of a banquet, where the joy of a song, where the security of a city, where the glamour of gold are all rolled into one in one moment and one place. Where at the center of it all, if we can see through the crowds, we'll see somebody who is untamed as a lion who is humble as a bloodied lamb, who goes by the name of Jesus Christ. And at that moment, we'll feel our mouths moving and our diaphragms pushing and our larynx speaking, and we'll be saying, worthy, worthy, worthy are you to receive honor and glory and praise. And under that song, we may just hear, as he looks us in the eye, well done, my good and faithful servant. I cannot wait for that moment. An authentic Christianity involves turning from the idols and waiting for that day. It's not about now. It's about then. So those are the hallmarks. Now, as we look at them, can you see they're authentic Christians? They're the real deal, not Tommy Hilfinger. And as we turn the magnifying glass on ourselves, we'll respond in different ways. Some of us are perfectionist depressives. And whatever we look at in the Bible, we feel condemned. And we think, I'm really failing. And if that's you, I want to say to you, please don't be depressed. It's all about the direction in which we're moving. Are you seeing improvement over the course of a decade, 20 years, a lifetime? Be encouraged. Some of us are lazy optimists. We always love what we see in the mirror. And I want to say to you, don't listen to what I've just said to the perfectionist optimists, uh, pessimists. Listen to this. Through the book of Thessalonians, there's no place for complacency. Paul says, look, you're doing well, but we need to continue. Go on more and more. So keep striving. More modeling, even as we imitate. More being transformed, even as we understand. And perhaps some of us are new to all this. You've no idea what I've been speaking about, but you found it interesting. Keep looking and come back next week. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that you're so honest with us. You teach us what authentic Christianity looks like, and you help us to model it. So by the power of your Spirit, would you help us to model those hallmarks in our lives this week? For Jesus' name's sake. Amen.